The Boston Marathon was first run in 1897. It's actually the oldest annually run marathon in the world. And from the beginning, the Boston Marathon was a male-only event. No women ran in it. So commonplace was the assumption that a woman would not run in the Boston Marathon, that there wasn't even a rule against it. You don't need a rule preventing something that is out of the question. There were a bunch of ideas out there as to why women would not and, and should not and could not run this grueling 26-mile road race. I mean, first of all, there was just the belief that a woman could not accomplish such a feat, a belief that their bodies were incapable. There were anxieties that if a woman tried to run a marathon, her body would be hideously transformed. She would develop massive manly thighs. And or I've seen articles suggesting that if a woman ran a marathon, she would grow a mustache. 26 miles later, a nice bushy mustache. And then there was the fear that if a woman attempted to run a marathon, her uterus would slip out of her body. I'm not kidding. These were actual theories offered by the experts. And I tell you them to give you a sense of the, the weird science that was often used to justify the exclusion of women in sports. Well, these theories and beliefs, they received a, we're going to call it a swift kick to the groin when Roberta Gibb crashes the party. The first woman that we know of who ran the Boston Marathon was Roberta Gibb in 1966. Roberta Gibb was from Boston, but in 1966, she was living in San Diego. She was actually a college student at UC San Diego. In 1966, Roberta Gibb mailed her application to run the race. She filled in her full name, Roberta Gibb. The application was returned with a note from race officials saying that women were not capable of running such a great distance. Application denied. Let's talk about men and women and sports. Or a, a better way to put it, let's talk about men versus women in the arena of sports. The battle of the sexes. Us versus them. This is American Sport. And I'm your host, Professor Matt Andrews. There was a women's sports revolution that occurred during the era of what's known as second wave feminism. First wave feminism was the activism among women at the turn of the 20th century. This was a, a wave of new modern behavior and activism that culminated when women gained their constitutional right to vote with the passage of the 19th Amendment in 1920. Second wave feminism refers to all the different types of women's activism in the 1960s and the 1970s. This was an era when American women were attacking the system of gender discrimination in the United States. They were attacking the long history of unequal opportunity and unequal pay in this nation. They were demanding more control over their bodies, control in the form of legal access to abortion, for example. And the world of sports was one of the battlegrounds of the second wave feminist movement as well. And more than just one of the battlegrounds, I argue that American sporting arenas were the most symbolic of all the battlegrounds. And here's why. Like the halls of Congress and the corporate boardroom, American sporting arenas were male-dominated spaces. But sporting arenas are different from the halls of Congress and corporate boardrooms. They are unique. Yes, these are all three traditionally male spaces. 
But sporting arenas are places where male physical power was put on public display. It was in the sporting arena that men exhibited their, their physical toughness, their, their prowess, their ferocity, their martial spirit, and their muscular bodies, all of the things that supposedly differentiated them from women. The football field, the boxing ring, the marathon course. These were spaces where men demonstrated that they were men. A real woman doesn't play sports because a real man does. So we cannot allow women to play sports. And if a woman does try to play sports, if she seeks equality in the masculine world of sports, well then, we need to put her back in her place. This was the logic. And this takes us back to Roberta Gibb. So in 1966, Roberta Gibb mails in her application. And again, she uses her full name, Roberta Gibb. The application is returned with that note from race officials saying that women are not capable of running such a great distance. Your application is denied. So what do you think this supposedly incapable woman did? Well, she got on a bus. She traveled for four days from San Diego to Boston. She arrived at her parents' house the night before the race, got a little rest, and then went to the starting line the next day. Roberta Gibb hid behind a bush, and then she snuck into the field when the race began. And she finished the race in an unofficial time of three hours, 21 minutes, and 25 seconds. The time is unofficial because she did not have an official number pinned to her shirt. Well, some people took notice. The American sports magazine, Sports Illustrated, they made a quick note of her accomplishment in that week's issue. The title of the blurb was, A Game Girl in a Man's Game. Here's what they wrote. Last week, a tidy-looking and pretty 23-year-old blonde named Roberta Gibb not only started but covered the 26-mile, 385-yard course at a clip fast enough to finish ahead of no fewer than 290 of the event's 415 starters. So this is recognition, sure. But in a theme we are going to see again today, there was almost as much attention to this female athlete's physical attributes as to her athletic abilities. Not to mention that this 23-year-old female athlete here is being referred to as a girl and not a woman. Well, the next year, 1967, we get what I consider the main event at the Boston Marathon. In 1967, Catherine Switzer, was a 20-year-old undergraduate. She was at Syracuse University, and she wanted to run the Boston Marathon, so she mailed in an application. Now, on her application, she did not make the same mistake that Roberta Gibb had. She identified herself not as Catherine Switzer, but as K.V. Switzer, initials only, a gender-neutral name. Her application was accepted, and an official race number was mailed to her. The race organizers assumed that K.V. Switzer was a man. So Catherine Switzer, she shows up on the day of the race, a, a cold April day. She's wearing baggy gray sweats, like the kind you might wear in a high school gym class. And she was running with a friend, her, her boyfriend actually, a burly Syracuse University football player. And I mention him because he comes into play in just a moment. The race begins, and a couple of miles into the marathon, suddenly the director of the race, a 63-year-old man named Jock Semple, and let's just pause for a minute to appreciate just how perfect that, that name is, Jock Semple. He sees Switzer, and he bursts onto the course to stop her. Jock Semple, 
is the Boston Marathon in many ways. He loved the Boston Marathon. It was his Boston Marathon as he saw it. And Jock Semple has no patience for tomfoolery. He snatched cigars from the runners who tried to light them up at the starting line. He, he went after the jokers and the frat boys who showed up to his race dressed up as clowns or wearing gorilla costumes. And now Jock Semple is about to go after Catherine Switzer because, well, because she was a woman. As Catherine Switzer tells the story, she was running the race when all of a sudden, a man, his, his face contorted in rage, came charging at her, screaming, get the hell out of my race and give me my numbers. It was Jock Semple. Semple grabbed onto the back of Switzer and tried to pull her off the course. This is when Switzer's burly boyfriend charged into the side of Jock Semple, kind of hit him with the force of a middle linebacker. He gave Semple a, a shoulder bump, and it was Jock Semple who went flying off the course and into the grass. Switzer was shaken, but she gathered herself, calmed herself, and she continued to run, and she finished the race, time of four hours and 20 minutes. The first woman to officially run and finish the Boston Marathon. For the record, it would not be until five years later, in 1972, that the Boston Marathon was officially opened to female entrants. I start with these stories from the Boston Marathon because I think that together they illuminate three important things. First, these stories tell us that women wanted to run in this race. So they inform us of the desires that were out there among women for participation in sports. They wanted to participate in events like the Boston Marathon. Second, they tell us that women could run and complete this race. So these stories symbolize the athletic capabilities of women from this era. They demonstrate just how wrongheaded the assumptions about female frailty from this era were. And third, and very importantly, the Catherine Switzer story, the Catherine Switzer and Jock Semple story, it demonstrates that there were men out there who would literally try to hold women back. They, they would do everything in their power to keep women from participating in sports. And this last point is really my overarching point today. When women made gains in the world of sport, men saw it as a challenge. They often saw it as a threat. And not just in sports. The story of the feminist movement is not just the story of women knocking down doors and demanding opportunity. It is also the story of men seeing this and believing that this was a problem, that it's a, an intrusion in a space that they believed belonged only to them. And so men fought back. That's the story of the women's athletic revolution in this era. It's not just the story of women battling and making gains in the world of sport, but it's also the story of men fighting back. They, these gains were seen as somehow being bad for them. Well, nowhere do we see this us-versus-them mentality more clearly than in a sporting event that was billed as the Battle of the Sexes. This was the name given to the most highly anticipated tennis match in American history, and a tennis match that was also one of the strangest sporting events in American history. So let me tell you the story of the 1973 tennis match between Billie Jean King, a female tennis player, and Bobby Riggs, a male tennis player. 
This is a story that a lot of people think they know. It's a relatively famous moment, made even more famous by a recent film called Battle of the Sexes, starring Emma Stone and Steve Carell. It's a good movie. I liked it. But it left a lot out. The story of Billie Jean King is a story that's even more complicated and controversial and interesting than Hollywood filmmakers like to tell. So let me tell you a more complete version of this story. Billie Jean King was the top women's tennis player of the era, the, the late 60s and the early 1970s. And let me start right off by making a case for the tremendous significance of Billie Jean King. When gauging the women's athletic revolution of the 1970s, I think you need to point to three things. There are three catalysts or sources of the women's athletic revolution. First, you need to understand that it occurred within the larger context of second-wave feminism. We talked about that. Next, you need to point to the massive changes brought by Title IX. Title IX is a piece of federal legislation enacted in 1972. And with Title IX, the federal government was now saying that high school and, and college sports programs, they needed to provide opportunities for girls and women. But the third catalyst of this women's athletic revolution is Billie Jean King herself. Like Jackie Robinson was for racial integration and like Muhammad Ali was for black power, Billie Jean King was the face or the, or, or the body of the women's athletic revolution. And in some ways, Billie Jean King is the face of second wave feminism. But to a large degree, Billie Jean King was the individual around whom Americans debated feminism. Your answer to the question, do you support Billie Jean King, was in many ways your answer to the question, are you a feminist? Billie Jean Moffat, as she was known when she was born, was born in 1943. She was a working class girl, the, the daughter of a Long Beach, California fireman. And she first started making headlines as a high school tennis star in Long Beach, California. By 1961, when she was 18 years old, she was an amateur tennis player and the third ranked women's tennis player in the world. Now, today, an outstanding female high school tennis player might consider accepting a college scholarship to play tennis. But colleges did not give athletic scholarships to women back then. Colleges did not have women's tennis teams back then. Those things come with Title IX. As she rose through the tennis ranks, the American press didn't quite know what to make of this player that they couldn't resist calling Little Miss Moffat, thereby infantilizing her and linking her with a children's nursery rhyme. Let me give you a sense of some of the ways that the media described Billie Jean Moffat. Here's Sports Illustrated in 1963. Billie Jean, the daughter of a Long Beach fireman, stands five foot six inches tall, has brown hair, light blue eyes, a small impertinent nose, and a weight problem. The New York Times, they called her the bespectacled tomboy. Billie Jean wore glasses. Time Magazine called her the chunky, bespectacled little Californian. Wow, that one's tough. According to Time, she was both chunky and little, big and small, all at the same time. B Billie Jean just couldn't win. And again, we see that male sports writers just can't keep themselves from focusing on the bodies of female athletes. I mean, trust me, no one ever commented on Muhammad Ali's impertinent nose. 
1965, Billie Jean Moffat married a man named Larry King. Not the Larry King you're probably thinking of, the 125-year-old guy with the suspenders on CNN. It's a different Larry King. Hence her name, Billie Jean King. And when she broke through and won her first Wimbledon singles title in 1966, she was 23 years old, the press did not ask her how it felt to accomplish this feat. Instead, the first thing they asked was, when are you going to have children? Billie Jean King threw the question right back in the reporters' faces, telling them she would answer that question when they asked the same question of the men's champion. Billie Jean King made it very clear that her career, her tennis career, was her priority. Billie Jean King was controversial for many reasons, but one of them was because she openly admitted to having an abortion so she could continue her tennis career. In 1972, Billie Jean King was one of 53 prominent American women who signed a public manifesto announcing that they had had an abortion. And this manifesto was published in the first edition of a new feminist magazine, Ms. This declaration was part of a larger movement at this time to destigmatize abortion. It was part of a push to demand that all states repeal their anti-abortion laws. In fact, it was the next year, 1973, that the Supreme Court ruled that all women possessed a constitutional right to have an abortion in Roe v. Wade. Now, feminists applauded King for having the bravery to tell this story. They said this was an important step in destigmatizing this procedure. But for many Americans, this was proof, further proof, that women and sports were incompatible. Billie Jean King's desire for athletic greatness had caused her to end her pregnancy and her chance to be a mother. And for these Americans, being a mother was supposed to be a woman's number one goal, not winning Wimbledon. And so King was seen as evidence that sports and womanhood really were antithetical. Billie Jean King garnered controversy in another way. King was the player who was most outspoken about the fact that the prize money given at Grand Slam tournaments, tournaments like the U.S. Open, that money was unequal. In fact, it was very unequal. Beginning in 1968, tennis moves into what's known as the open era, meaning professionals could now compete. Before 1968, tennis was theoretically strictly amateur. Now these tournaments were open to everyone, hence the term the open era. In the early years of the open era, men received about eight times the amount awarded to women, even though almost as many people paid to see women play as men. And so Billie Jean King argued that the payouts should be more equal. This was one of the fundamental arguments of the feminist movement. Women should be paid the same as men for their efforts, equal pay for their labors. When the directors of the United States Tennis Association, the USTA, when they refused to listen, Billie Jean King led a revolt. King convinced many of the other top female players to abandon the USTA and form a new women's tennis league, the Virginia Slims Circuit. It's called this because they were sponsored by the Virginia Slim Cigarette, a slender cigarette marketed toward women, and a product that advertised itself with the phrase, you've come a long way, baby. The members of the Virginia Slim Circuit they ran their own tennis tournaments, and they threatened to boycott big tournaments like the U.S. Open unless the payouts were more equal. And faced with the loss of many of the game's best female players, players like Billie Jean King, 
the major tournaments gave in. They reduced the disparity between male and female prize money because they wanted Billie Jean King and these other players in their tournaments. More equal pay. This was a feminist victory. All of this outspokenness made Billie Jean King the focus of a one-time great American men's tennis player, Bobby Riggs. Billie Jean King is going to end up winning 39 Grand Slam tennis titles, that's playing singles, doubles, and mixed doubles. But the match everyone remembers her for is her 1973 contest against Bobby Riggs. This is the battle of the sexes. And as I said, it's one of the most anticipated sporting events in American history, but it is definitely one of the strangest. Bobby Riggs was a one-time men's tennis great. He actually won both Wimbledon and the U.S. Open in 1939, but then the best years of his career were interrupted by World War II. He continued to play tennis in his 40s and his 50s, often engaging in, in stunts to draw attention. He played tennis while holding a chair. He played a match dressed as a baby. Riggs was a hustler. He'd do anything for money and anything for attention, too. And in the early 1970s, Bobby Riggs was trying to drum up interest for a men's senior tennis tour. And one of the ways he was doing this was by saying that even in his 50s, he could easily beat any of the top-ranked women's players. Now, let me say this about Riggs and what he does. Riggs was a lot like Muhammad Ali in that he was a brilliant self-promoter. I, I suspect that he learned that from Ali, that they were in the same era. I honestly don't know if Riggs truly believed everything that he said. And I'll give you some of his quotes in a moment. But he said what he said, and so whether it was his firm convictions or just beating the publicity drum, I think we need to hold him to it. Well, what Bobby Riggs realized was that being a male chauvinist and demeaning the athletic abilities of women, this could pay. It could pay handsomely. Bobby Riggs got the attention that he did because of all the gender conflict in the United States at this time. There were Americans who were tired of the feminist movement, who, who resented the feminist movement, and Riggs gave expression to their resentment. Bobby Riggs was the anti-feminist's hero. Bobby Riggs challenged Billie Jean King to a tennis match. Billie Jean King was not interested. In her mind, she had nothing to gain from playing this noisy man in his mid-50s, so she declined. Bobby Riggs looked elsewhere, and he got someone to put up $10,000, and he managed to convince Margaret Court. Margaret Court was from Australia, and she was one of the best women's tennis players in the world. He managed to convince Margaret Court to play a game of tennis. Now, $10,000, this was about five times what women received for winning a Grand Slam tournament back then. So Margaret Court accepted. The match occurred on Mother's Day, 1973. Just before the match, Riggs handed Margaret Court a dozen roses, the gentleman that he was, and then he thrashed her in 57 minutes. The score was 6-2, 6-1. It has forever been known as the Mother's Day Massacre. And now Billie Jean King knew that she had to play Bobby Riggs. She had to play and defeat Riggs as ideas about women's tennis had been set back years. 
Well, she also agreed because promoters put up $100,000 for a winner-take-all tennis match. This was serious cash. And plus, there would be hundreds of thousands of dollars in endorsement opportunities. The match was scheduled for September 1973 in the Houston Astrodome. It was billed as the Battle of the Sexes, the super-feminist Billie Jean King against the male chauvinist Bobby Riggs. This tennis match was hyped like a prize fight. This was part tennis match, part boxing match, part rock concert, part political convention. There, There has never been another sporting event like it in American history. And the lead up to this tennis match, it revealed a lot about male assumptions in the United States, about women in general, and female athletes in particular. Here's what Bobby Riggs told the press about Billie Jean King. Quote, Hell, we know there is no way she can beat me. When the pressure mounts and she thinks about 50 million people are watching on TV, she'll fold. That's the way women are. Then he added, with his certain victory, he was going to, quote, put Billie Jean and all the other feminists back where they belong, in the kitchen and in the bedroom. Again, Does he mean it, or is he just provoking interest, or maybe it doesn't matter, because he said it. Most sports writers, who were men, they agreed with Riggs, and they thought he would beat Billie Jean King. Las Vegas oddsmakers made Bobby Riggs a two-to-one favorite. Now that's telling. The experts were willing to put their money on the line. They were confident in Bobby Riggs, especially since the match would be played by men's rules. It would be best three out of five sets, not best two out of three, as the Mother's Day Massacre had been. Bobby Riggs was 55 years old. Billie Jean King was 29. But attitudes about female athletes were so undeveloped at this time, the sports establishment just could not conceive of a Billie Jean King victory. So, September 20th, 1973, 65,000 people, they jam into the Houston Astrodome, that indoor air-conditioned stadium that had opened in 1965. The Astrodome was packed for this tennis match. People toward the back couldn't even see the tennis ball. They just wanted to be there. And millions of Americans were watching on television. Billie Jean King entered the Astrodome Cleopatra style. She was carried in a chair held by four muscle men dressed like ancient Egyptian slaves. Bobby Riggs followed in a rickshaw, pushed and pulled by models in tight t-shirts. He called these women his bosom buddies. Before the first serve, Bobby Riggs gave Billie Jean King the giant sugar daddy lollipop. Endorsement, cha-ching. He told King, you're the biggest sucker in the world. Billie Jean King gave Bobby Riggs a baby pig. A baby pig for a male chauvinist pig. What in the hell is going on here? Is this sports? Is this amusing entertainment? Well, it's both. And then the match. And this match surprised a lot of people. Billie Jean King played the power tennis that was associated with the men's game. Bobby Riggs played a game of drop shots and lobs, a style more associated back then with women's tennis. And Billie Jean King, playing power tennis, she beat Bobby Riggs in straight sets, 
646363. Announcing the contest for ABC Sports was Howard Cosell, famous for announcing football games and boxing matches. Well, when King won match point, Cosell blurted into the microphone, It is over. Billie Jean King defeats Bobby Riggs. Equality for women. Wow. If only it were that easy. Anyway, it was a tradition in matches like this for the winner to jump over the net and console the loser, but Bobby Riggs wanted to jump over the net, so he beat Billie Jean King to it. Okay, what just happened? This was simultaneously one of the most significant and one of the weirdest athletic competitions in American history. And it prompts a question. What did it really prove? It it certainly didn't prove anything about the relative abilities of the top male and female tennis players. Everyone knew that Jimmy Connors, who was the top male player from that era, could beat Billie Jean King. I mean, Billie Jean King wasn't saying she could beat him. But the match brought Billie Jean King and women's tennis to national attention. For the first time, many Americans saw on TV a strong, fit, aggressive female athlete. People had to start rethinking their assumptions about women in sports. I think the match also showed just how badly many American men wanted Billie Jean King to be put in her place, to be you know, sent back to the kitchen in the bedroom, as Bobby Riggs had put it. Because after she beat Riggs, a slew of male tennis players started standing up and challenging Billie Jean King. Well, I can beat her. My turn. Give me a shot. Billie Jean King refused every one of these challenges. She had proven her point. I suppose I need to mention this as well. Right after the match, in fact, the very next day, there were accusations that Bobby Riggs had purposefully lost the match in order to win at the betting window. These accusations resurfaced a few years back on the 40th anniversary of the match. I've heard that rumor, but I don't believe that rumor. And here's why. Bobby Riggs stood to make a ton of money if he beat Billie Jean King. First of all, he lost the $100,000 prize. But more than this, had he won, promoters were ready to offer him $1 million to play the new darling of women's tennis, Chris Everett. Plus, Riggs always denied that he threw the match, and he later passed a lie detector test, attesting to the honesty of the contest. So to me, it just doesn't add up. In my mind, the persistent claims that the match had to be fixed, they are indicative of a culture that to this day wants to diminish the accomplishments of female athletes, especially when those victories come over men. Two more quick things to say about Billie Jean King, because I I guess I just love talking about Billie Jean King. Not only did Billie Jean King go on to have a remarkable tennis career, 12 Grand Slam singles titles, six Wimbledon championships, 39 Grand Slam titles in all. But she also prompted us to reimagine how sports operated and, and were publicized in this country. Here are a couple things I bet you didn't know about Billie Jean King. In the 1970s, Billie Jean King was frustrated with the lack of coverage of women's sports in magazines like Sports Illustrated. And specifically, she was upset with the fact that Sports Illustrated was much more interested in putting young women in bikinis on the cover for their swimsuit issue than they were in actually covering women's sports. 
I was just looking back at the covers of Sports Illustrated magazine in 1974. That year, the only time a woman appears on the cover of that magazine is on the cover of the swimsuit issue. Meanwhile, male high school athletes, high school athletes, grace the cover that year. So in 1974, fed up with this, Billie Jean King raised revenue for and published her own magazine called Women's Sports, a magazine that actually treated women's sports seriously. And in that same year, 1974, Billie Jean King was the driving force behind the creation of a new sports league called World Team Tennis, the WTT. She wanted tennis teams that were linked with cities. She was hoping that civic pride could help propel interest in tennis. And Billie Jean King, for example, she played for the Philadelphia Freedom. You may know that name. There's an Elton John song called Philadelphia Freedom. Elton John was a buddy of Billie Jean King's, and he wrote that song as the theme song for that team. But more than just pushing civic identity, there was remarkable gender equity in world team tennis. Billie Jean King really believed that the future of this country was men and women working together. So teams in the WTT, they were made up of an equal number of male and female players. There would be men's single matches, women's single matches, and then mixed double matches. That is double competitions with a man and a woman on the same team. Tennis is unique. It has the mixed doubles format. And think about how radical or unique this is in sports, where men and women compete against each other on the same field of play and on equal terms. This was Billie Jean King's vision of tennis, and this was her vision of America. There are only a handful of athletes in American history who showed us a different way, who made us look differently at sports. There was Babe Ruth, who showed us that an athlete could be a media star and a commercial pitch man. There was Muhammad Ali, who showed us that an athlete could be a contrarian, a, a protester. He showed us that the heavyweight championship could be a platform from which to critique American race relations and foreign policy. I suppose there was Michael Jordan, who showed us that man could indeed fly and that an athlete could become a billionaire. And then there was Billie Jean King, that's my Mount Rushmore for American sports. Ruth, Ali, Jordan, and Billie Jean King. Although, sorry, now that I'm thinking about this, I need to cheat. I need five faces. I'm putting Jackie Robinson up there as well. But of those five, it might be Billie Jean King who is the most significant of them all. I think you can make the argument, a reasonable person could disagree, but I think you can make the argument that Billie Jean King is the single most influential athlete in American history. And that's because through her tennis career, and through that one 1973 tennis match in particular that was said to represent feminism and anti-feminism, she influenced the way that a full half of the population felt about themselves and began expressing themselves with regard to athletics. This is American Sport. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode of American Sport and want to learn more, visit our website, americansportpodcast.com. We'd love for you to subscribe, rate, share, and give us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. American Sport was created by me, Matt Andrews, 
and is an original podcast from Trailblazer Studios. Executive produced by Katie Rohn, co-produced by Casey Helmick and Aurelia Belfield. You can find American Sport wherever you get your podcasts.